Well, if you're here in uh, the main room with me, would you please open your Bibles to Matthew 13? Today we're going to finish the parables or the section of the parabolic teachings of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the last two parables that Jesus teaches in this chapter. So looking at verses 47 to 52. Matthew 13, 47 to 52. Just by way of reminder, Jesus, these are called the parables of the kingdom. And so Jesus is describing this age in the kingdom where the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And he describes this age parabolically, and parables are short stories thrown alongside a spiritual truth for comparison. They are Physical metaphors for spiritual realities. Now let me just briefly review what Jesus taught with the parables we've gone through already. First, Jesus taught and described the variety of responses to the gospel in this age. As the gospel is proclaimed, people respond in different ways. Some will reject it right away, and that is described by the road soil in the parable of the sower. Some will receive the truth, but they don't have deep roots, and eventually they wither away like the rocky soil. Some will receive the truth with joy, but the worries of the world will choke out their quote-unquote faith, and that is, the, uh, that is the weedy soil. But some will receive the truth, and they will bear good fruit, and that is the good soil. The second parable, Jesus tells his disciples that unbelievers and believers will live together in this age. And that it's not our job as believers to weed out unbelievers from the world, but we wait for the end of the age. That's when Jesus Christ and his angels will separate them, and then he will judge the wicked. In the third, uh, third and fourth parable, we saw the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven and the dough. And that's where Jesus describes the growth and eventual success of his kingdom. Though it starts small like a mustard seed, it will eventually have worldwide dominion like the full tree. And although the initial influence is small, the gospel will spread and will eventually save all of God's elect. The mission will be completed. That is like the leaven in the dough. In last week's parables, Jesus describes that person who finds salvation in this age. They value Christ. They see him as a great treasure hidden in a field or a pearl without price. They value him and his kingdom above all else. In fact, they would willingly sell it all to have Christ in this age. And this is helpful instruction. This is encouraging for believers. These parables should comfort you. It should give you a sense of purpose, assurance in God's kingdom plan. But at the same time, there are some strong warnings in this parabolic teaching. It's not all quote-unquote good news or easy listening. There are strong warnings from the Lord Jesus Christ for the wicked in this age. And we have another one of those warnings in the parable that we're going to look at this morning. If you look at Matthew 13 and look at verse 47, I just want you to notice the first word 
Jesus says again, again. And Jesus is about to repeat himself. He's about to say something or or teach something that was similar to what he taught already. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to, with this parable of the net, teach a very similar truth to what he taught in the parable of the weeds and the wheat. It basically has the same message. Listen, this is the warning. Separation and judgment is coming for the wicked at the end of the age. Separation and judgment is coming for the wicked at the end of the age. This is repeated by the Lord Jesus. There is a universal, uh, universal principle of learning. And that is, the things that are most often repeated are the things that must be remembered. You think Jesus wants you to remember this morning that judgment is coming? He does. This is important teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to know that if you read the scriptures start to finish, there is not a prophet or an apostle or a Bible character that talked more about judgment and hell than the Lord Jesus. I know that might shock you. If you go into Google and you type in the word sermon or YouTube, sermon, I bet it'd take about 150, maybe 200 before you get to a sermon on judgment. It'll be a lot of sermons about love, about the grace of God, His mercy, His compassion, which is good and true, but the Lord Jesus repeated most often the subject of judgment and the anticipation of hell and the realities of that. It's not a subject we should avoid. In fact, it's one that Jesus wants us to note and remember. And so... We need to consider this topic. As Christians, it's good for us to regularly consider the heat of hell and remember what God saved us from. And to also remember the destiny that awaits those unsaved around us. I would pray that the fire of hell would motivate you to evangelize and to have a compassion for the lost. And if you're not a Christian here today, Jesus wants you to know that hell is real and it is sure and it is coming. And so if you don't repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, this is your destiny. And so with that said, let me read the parable of the net in verse 47. Jesus says again, The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and will throw them into the fiery furnace In the place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The first point in your outline is very simple. Judgment is coming. You notice that when I read 
verses 49 and 50, I emphasized the tense of the verb. Will. This will happen. It's in the future indicative tense, which means that these statements are declared as future certainties. And let's not forget who's speaking. It is Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. So these are declarations from God. And God once said in Isaiah 14, 24, as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will stand. God's word goes out. It accomplishes what he intends and what he purposes. It brings it about. You can be confident That judgment is coming. The day of judgment is promised by God. Therefore, it is inevitable. It is unstoppable. I know maybe some of you have flown in an airplane or or waited at a, a train stop for your train to come by, bus, whatever. And as you're waiting there for your train or your plane to come... Most of us, you know, live our lives pretty confident that people are going to keep their schedules and that they'll show up and that our plane will take off. But some of us, there is that slight concern, you know what, I wonder if my flight or my bus will be delayed. There's a chance it might. You know, there's, in fact, a chance that your bus might not come, that the plane might be so delayed that they will cancel the flight. There is that chance. Judgment is the train that can't be stopped. It comes. It comes just as God has determined it would. And so we're all waiting. We're all waiting. And you can be sure. In fact, you can be more sure that judgment is coming, that judgment day is coming, than you can in waking up tomorrow morning. Some of you might go, man, every day is a gift from God and And I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning. That's true. Chance you might. But there is no chance. There is no probability that judgment won't come. Judgment is coming. There will be a judgment day. And Jesus, notice, he gives a time stamp on this judgment day. He says in verse 49, So it will be at the end of the age. Judgment day can't be rushed. It can't be delayed or postponed by human conditions. It will come exactly when God has determined it. Acts 17.26 tells us that God determines times and periods. And in verses 30 to 31, we read, it says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people, all, all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Judgment is coming. You can be sure of it. That's the first thing you need to see as we look at this parable. Judgment is coming. The second thing you need to see is that judgment is complete or thorough. Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven or this day of judgment like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. 
Jesus uses a word here, segene, which is a dragnet. Do you know what a dragnet is? It's a specific time, a type of fishing net. I have pictures that should be up there on the screen. And so you see they cast a very large net into the sea, and it basically culls through a large area, and it picks up fish of every kind. This is not selective fishing. This isn't like putting a lure in to try to catch bass or putting you know, bait on a hook to try to catch only trout. This catches fish of every kind and pulls them all to shore or to shore, for sure. So this is an illustration of God's complete judgment, his thoroughness on that day. Every kind of fish, every kind of person will stand before the judgment seat. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You can be sure of that. Romans 14.10 says, We will all stand. All means all. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, and every tongue shall, shall confess to God, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, on that day, we see in the parable that this includes the righteous and the wicked. Both stand before the Lord on that judgment day. They are both pulled in by the nets that are cast. But they are separated into one of two categories. So every person in this room, listen, is in one of these two categories. It's black or white. It is you are either righteous and determined as righteous, or you are wicked and determined as wicked. You are either a good fish or a bad fish. You are either wanted and edible, or you are not wanted and thrown away, defective. We're all in one of these two categories, and so his judgment is complete. All are collected and sorted and destined. But it's at this point, listen, that this parable separates from the parable of the weeds. Because in the parable of the weeds, Jesus told the eternal destiny of the righteous. He told us where the righteous will go, what their eternal destiny is. He says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. But he leaves the positive destination of the righteous out of this parable. And he focuses only on the eternal destiny of the wicked. And so uniquely, this parable emphasizes and focuses only on the destiny of the wicked, the judgment of the wicked. It's almost as if Jesus presses that hot iron harder onto our hearts to remind us of this sobering truth. And that leads us to our third point, judgment is consequence. Judgment is consequence. It is a just consequence, meaning every person deserves judgment. Jesus says the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them, that is a referent to the evil ones, the evil ones into the fiery furnace. 
Jesus uses this word evil ones in the Greek. It is poneros. Here is one definition of the Greek word poneros. It means to be morally or socially worthless. To be wicked, to be evil, to be bad, to be base, to be vicious, or to be degenerate. That's a lovely definition, isn't it? Jesus calls them in the previous parable, he calls them sin causers and law breakers. What kinds of people come to your mind when you think about poneros, evil ones, wicked people? What kind of people come to your mind? What kind of people do you think should be condemned and cast out of God's kingdom? Maybe your list looks a little bit like the Apostle Paul's list. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul has a list of these evil ones. He describes them this way. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is the group, the unrighteous, the wicked ones that Jesus is describing. Paul says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor Thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You might be thinking, amen, those people should not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are exactly the people I had on my list. The vile, wicked people of the earth, the mass murderers, the rapists. The cheaters, the liars, the thieves, the unfaithful. They have earned it. This is their consequence. And yes, that is true. That is true. But Christian, listen to me. I think we too easily forget Paul's next words in 1 Corinthians 6. We too easily forget this fact. Paul says, and such were some of you. You were, at a time, on that list. Identified by the sins that enslaved you. Sure, you may not be as wicked as the next guy down the street who cheated on his taxes. Or the guy that you heard about who killed somebody in your city. Or you might look back at history and say, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm not as bad as Stalin. I'm not as bad as Mussolini. I'm not as bad as the Hamas. But listen, have you sinned against a holy God? Have you broken one of God's perfect commandments? Have you sinned in thought, word, and deed even just once? then you've fallen short. And you are in the list of those that by their own merit, standing just with your life and nobody else's, you deserve the same judgment. The consequences of your sin is death and eternal suffering. Even if you think, I'm not that bad. If you compare yourself to a holy and righteous, perfect God, then you know immediately, I am that bad. I can't make it on my own. These are 
consequences for sin. We're all children of wrath, or at one point we were. We were all in, dead in our trespasses and sins. We were destined for judgment day. Such were some of you. We can't rush past this reality, forgetting that at one point we were on this list. We have broken the commandments of God in thought, word, and deed. Such were some of you. And it's not by our own merit or our own righteousness that we escaped judgment, but thanks be to God who saved us, not through our own righteous works, but through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Remember, what makes you a good fish on judgment day is not that you were a good person, nor that you were any better than the other fish. That's not how God's angels make the separation. How do they make the separation? They separate the evil from the righteous. Righteousness is God's standard. And righteousness cannot be accomplished by any man. Except one. And it's not anybody in this room. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. Who lived a perfect and righteous life. Who died a substitutionary death. And who rose again from the grave. And so when the angels call through the world and they're looking for the righteous, they are looking not for you to be a better person or for those who are better by the world standards than others. They're looking for those covered in the coat of Jesus Christ's righteousness. Those that stand not in a righteousness of their own, but in a righteousness that comes only from Christ. They're looking for Jesus in you or covering you. And let me tell you, they see in black or white. There's no gray area. There's no in between. And you should have zero confidence that you can make it to that day on your own or that you can stand righteous before a righteous God by your own effort. You can't. It is only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and by faith in Him that we will be separated from the evil ones on that day. Apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ, every single one of us in this room remains under judgment. We deserve this day. We've earned it. We've earned this day more than we've earned a pass from God to get to heaven on our own. And so we are wholly deserving of the consequences of judgment. And I want you to see the consequences of judgment are cruel. That's the fourth point in your outline. Judgment is cruel. The word cruel is to cause immense pain and suffering. Jesus says that the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. First, it's described as a fiery furnace, a place of Burning, And when you think about a fiery furnace, especially in the first century, that was a torture chamber. That's what would come to mind as they think about a fiery furnace. And you need to know this isn't a theoretical place or even a symbolic place. It is a real place of emotional and physical anguish. He says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Now, Jesus repeats this phrase six times in the Gospel of Matthew. Six times. The, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't you think we need to know what it means? And what kind of description is given here by the Lord Jesus of this place? First, look at the weeping. Well, actually, even before that, I want you to know that in the Greek, the weeping and the gnashing are emphasized. They have definite articles before them. So you could read it this way. In that place, there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. In other words, there will be bitter weeping and severe gnashing of teeth. The weeping refers to the emotional soul anguish. Those are tears of despair. The gnashing of teeth is the physical pain. We know that. When, when, when somebody is in extreme pain, you put a piece of cloth or a towel between their teeth because otherwise they would gnash and grind their teeth down. That's some serious pain. Some people, maybe some of you in this room, would say that you crave pain. may have heard that. People self-inflict pain. They say they crave it or they want pain. In a recent study I read through Cornell University on how self-injury changes feelings, the results showed that inflicting the injury, inflicting it, otherwise known as pain onset, did not make people feel better. But it is the relief from that pain, what's called pain offset, that's what they actually crave. And so people, in order to experience, or sorry, to escape from serious emotional pain, they will inflict physical pain upon themselves so that they would have the relief from that physical pain and it would trick their brain into thinking that they're also experiencing relief from the emotional pain. But they're not. As you know, self-injury, those who do that to themselves, often are addicted to that and never can get out. It's because they're looking and they're craving for relief from pain, not the pain itself. You know, the famous rock band, ACDC, Highway to Hell, talk about going to hell as this great experience, wanting to go there, to be with all friends. It is not a happy place. Because in hell, listen, there is no relief. There's no relief. So even if you think you crave pain, which you don't, you're not going to get the relief from either the emotional or the physical pain that in this place that Jesus is describing, there will be severe weeping and gnashing of teeth. No relief. No one wants hell. At least no one who really understands what hell is. You know what relief from pain is? You know what that means or what that is? Relief from pain is called mercy. Mercy is relief from pain. Because sin brings pain, sin brings death, therefore we earn pain and death, but whenever you experience relief, even physically, that is a mercy of God. Because he's withholding the wrath that we justly deserve. And he gives he causes the sun to rise on the evil and he causes the sun to rise on the righteous. He gives even wicked people mercy as they live their lives on this earth. 
as they get relief through med- medication, as they experience a comfortable moment in their beds or, or sitting on a nice sofa, or there's a moment in their life where they're not going through a trial, that's the mercy of God temporarily. But that's the only relief that those people without Christ will ever experience because after death comes judgment and in judgment there is no relief. It is only and always discomfort, pain, burning, suffering, anguish, despair, dark, darkness, hopelessness. It is no relief. The mercy of God is, is withholding the wrath that you do deserve. He, he is like a dam that as his wrath is stored up and raises higher, he's withholding it for a time. Romans 2 describes it that way. He says, because of your hard and unrepentant hearts, you're storing up for yourself wrath. On the day of wrath, that's when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so every breath you take, every moment you experience of of comfort, of relief on earth, that is God's mercy. Because you don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But God is full of compassion and mercy, causing the sun to rise on the unjust and the just. And just know that those short-lived, fleeting moments of physical relief, that's all that you get if you don't have Christ. Because after death comes judgment, and judgment is cruel. It is cruel. As we consider the suffering of judgment, we have to consider the suffering Savior. The description of judgment that Jesus gives here is a description of pain and suffering, and we would be remiss as believers to forget that Jesus took that for us. That if your faith is in Jesus Christ and you stand in His righteousness, that came at an incredible cost. The cost of his suffering and pain on your behalf. Jesus Christ bore all of that on the cross in your place. In other words, the dam fell. The dam fell and the waters burst forth. And it poured out upon Christ. Jesus Christ stood between the rushing waters in your life. And he took the brunt force of it all. All the pain and suffering in your place. So that you wouldn't have to. I love the song that describes what took place. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame. And scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Yet full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. And when He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew His song will sing, hallelujah, what a Savior.
Christian, as we consider Judgment Day, the pain and suffering that the wicked will experience outside of Christ, we must remember the pain and suffering that Christ experienced for those of us that are in Him. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That Jesus Christ took all of that in our place. It strikes me that as Jesus is describing the day of judgment, He's not only foretelling His victory, but He's foretelling the path to victory that He took to get there. It was a path of suffering and death in our place. Jesus is a wonderful Savior. He is the rock of ages that we can hide in to rescue us from judgment. And I want to just call to you today that if you stand wicked and condemned in your sins, that you would flee to Christ today to be covered and protected in Him and be saved from judgment, saved from the wrath of God to come. You're not going to be able to save yourself. You're not going to make yourself righteous. All you can do is hide in the rock of ages. Know Christ and trust in Him. Judgment is coming for the wicked, but the righteous rest in Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise and thank God for that this week. Remember judgment and remember what Christ did to save you from it. Well, there's another parable in this passage in verses 51 to 52. I want you to look down at these verses as I read them. Jesus says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. He said to them, therefore... Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So the final point in your outline is bring the old and the new. Bring the old and the new. So Jesus finishes this big section with a question and one more parable. First, the question, do you understand these things? Remember that when Jesus asked that, that is a salvation question. Because Jesus teaches the parables like a a two-edged sword. On the one hand, he hides truth from the wicked. On the other hand, he reveals truth to those whom he chooses to reveal to. And if you're in God's grace and you have eyes to see and ears to hear and you understand, praise God. That's a good sign that you're in Christ. And that you're a true child of God and you'll bear good fruit because you're the good soil. But if you don't understand these things or you're not grasping these things or they have no eternal bearing or weight on your life, that is a bad sign. That is a bad sign that you have not received Christ or the salvation that he provides. So let me ask you, do you understand these things? Do you understand what's been taught? Not just intellectually but affectionately and volitionally. It it doesn't just affect your mind, but it affects your entire life, your soul and the way you live. Do you understand these things? The disciples say, yes, which they did. Not perfectly, not a holistic picture. They still have a lot to learn, but they do understand these things. And they would see many of them come to fruition. And so Jesus says, good. If you understand it, great. Now you have a responsibility. With great power, great understanding comes a great responsibility. 
And so with what you've learned, you need to be like a good scribe. That's what Jesus tells the disciples. And he describes a a scribe and a master of a house as a parallel. Both have treasure that they need to reveal, that they need to bring forth. The scribe has the treasure of God's word. The master of the house has whatever treasures that he has in his house. Let's read verse 52 again. Jesus says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So you need to know what a scribe is. A scribe is a student of the scriptures. They study God's law, God's word. Uh, In this time, the Old Testament. They knew the writings, the prophets, and etc. of the Old Testament, the catalog of divine revelation, the first half of your Bible. And the scribe would spend his time reading this material, studying it, memorizing, meditating on it, and then teaching it. And so Jesus calls his disciples scribes. They are students of the scripture. But they're not just students of the Old Testament now. They're now students of Jesus Christ and the New Testament revelation that would come to the apostles. And so what do you need to do with your training? You've learned these things, but as a good scribe would do, what do you need to do with it? You need to bring forth both the old and the new. In other words, Jesus is saying to his apostles, you need to be able to teach these truths from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both. Just like a housemaster that has both old and new treasure, he brings it all forward. So does the diligent scribe when he studies the scripture. And just so you know, the apostles did this masterfully. If you read the book of Acts, and you read Peter's sermon, even Peter's sermon at Pentecost, it's an Old Testament sermon where he proves Jesus Christ is the Messiah from a variety of passages in the Old Testament. Paul was the same way. Paul was an expert scribe in the Old Testament, the Jew of Jews. And he convinces his Roman readers, if you read the epistle to the Romans, he convinces them of justification by faith, first from where? From the Old Testament, the faith of Abraham. And then teaches them the truth of being justified through Adam and the lineage of being of the line of Adam and then of the line of Christ. So much Old Testament in the apostles' teachings. They brought forth the old and the new. And then Matthew. We're in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew was great at this. An excellent Jewish scholar who pulled so much Old Testament prophecy to prove that Jesus was Indeed, the Messiah, the Son of God. And there's nobody better than Jesus. What did Jesus do on the road to Emmaus? Did he take out a a full canon Bible like we have, the ESV version, and, and show his story from the New Testament? No. He referenced the scriptures, that is the Old Testament scriptures and the writings, and showed the, peop- the men he was walking with that he was there. And all the scriptures that pointed to Jesus Christ. The whole redemptive history. The catalog of divine revelation. 
And so the apostles, the Lord Jesus did these things. Showing the ark of God's redemptive plan from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, Christianity doesn't start in the New Testament. That's not where the Christian faith breaks off from Judaism. No, our faith in the redemptive story starts in the beginning. I'm curious how well you know and understand your Old Testament. The Old Testament has been described as the crusty part of your Bible that doesn't often get used. Do you know the Old Testament? I'm not just talking about the stories like David and Goliath or Daniel in the lion's den. But do you understand the redemptive arc? That is how God's plan develops in the Old Testament and leans forward to fulfillment in the New Testament. You understand how that works? Or in your mind, when you think about the Old Testament, it's just a string of different kind of short stories that don't really relate or don't have any commonality. Do you understand the Old Testament? How well do you understand the Old Testament? Could you explain to your family member or the guy on the street or the gal in the grocery store how Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament? Could you show them from the scriptures where he was? What about if you have a Jewish neighbor who is, would only say that the Old Testament, the writings of the prophets and Moses, that's divine revelation. Everything else you guys have in the New Testament, well, that's just a bunch of hogwash. Could you show that Jewish person from the Old Testament that it's not? That Jesus Christ was promised and he is the Messiah? A lot of people in the church cannot. What they know about the Old Testament is, again, that it's just a string of short stories that don't really relate. Or maybe it's great testimonies of faith, of courage, of strength. Well, newsflash, the Old Testament's not about the people in it. It's about the God who works through people and events to accomplish his plan of redemption. Could you, like a good scribe, bring treasure from both the old and the new? I'd encourage you as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, to study and learn and know your Old Testament so that you could do this. So that you can explain to people from both the Old and the New Testament the truths of the kingdom of God, the truths of Jesus Christ. And explain God's big plan of redemption from old and new. Equip yourself, as good housemasters would, to explain these things. I want to give you just two ways to easily apply this principle today or this week. Two resources that I want to point you to. Now, these are resources that are used in conjunction with your study of God's Word. So, the assumption is, is when you're listening to one of these resources or completing or accomplishing the other, that you're reading the Bible along with them. They're meant to be complementary to your reading of Scripture and understanding of it. First resource, for those of you who do better listening, I want to highlight a, a podcast that I recorded and published called King and Kingdom. King and Kingdom podcast. In that podcast, I do an overview of the Old Testament. It's a high-level overview of the events of the Old Testament Redemptive history from Genesis to Malachi. It's easy reading, about 11 or 12 episodes, 20, 25 minutes long. You could get through it in a couple weeks on your way to and from work. 
And that will help you get a grasp on the Old Testament. King and Kingdom podcast. The second resource I want to encourage you to grow in your understanding of the Old Testament is one of our own, written by our associate pastor, Thomas Kovacs. That's for those of you who do better reading and want a more in-depth knowledge and study of the Old Testament, then I encourage you to take the Old Testament survey. The Old Testament survey. It is a book-by-book walkthrough the entire Old Testament. And there are questions for every book you go through, and you check in with Thomas for progress and encouragement and direction. And it is a great study. It is a more in-depth study so that you would understand your Old Testament. If you want somewhere to start, start with those two resources in complement with your reading of the Scripture. The best way to understand the Old Testament is to read it. And so you have these resources as a help, kind of a guide as you read through the Bible yourself. But I want to encourage us, because I know it's a, it is a weak point in a lot of churches to not understand kind of the purpose of the Old Testament. We're more familiar with the New. I'm just reminded of Colossians 1. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. All wisdom. That is the entire catalog of divine revelation, old and new. So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Let that be a charge for you to grow in that. But just to circle back some pointed questions. Have you considered the weight of Judgment Day? Are you confident it's coming? Have you felt the heat of hell? Are you prepared for that day? Are you covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith? Again, preparing for Judgment Day is not making yourself a better person or doing more good things, it's trust in Christ. Do you know him? Have you surrendered to him as Lord and Savior? If not, I encourage you to do that today. I encourage you to trust in Christ and his righteousness, not your own. And for those of us who have and were reminded of the heat and the judgment of Judgment Day in hell, are you warning others? Are you warning others of that day? You know, arguably the two most powerful, effective sermons in history. The first is biblical in Scripture. It's the sermon of Jonah to the Ninevites. Caused the greatest revival in recorded history. You know what his sermon was? Repent, judgment is coming. That's what he said. It wasn't, God loves you. (laughs) So we need to warn others. And, And the second would be, a sermon that stirred up the Great Awakening in our nation. A sermon by Jonathan Edwards. It wasn't, hey, God loves you. It was sinners in the hands of an angry God. Isn't it interesting that two of the most powerful and effective sermons ever preached were sermons of judgment, calling and warning sinners to repent because judgment is your destiny without Christ. Flee to Jesus Christ, as Edwards would say. So, As believers, are we warning others? Let let that heat that we feel on the topic of hell cause us to stir us up for a compassion for the lost, a love of our neighbors who are going there, and a desire to proclaim the gospel to all friends and family members and neighbors and even our enemies 
Listen, the reality of judgment day in hell is something you wouldn't even wish on your greatest enemy. It's far worse than that. And so let it cause you to love them. Love them. Have compassion for them. Just as God has had compassion for you and I. Let's pray. God, this is a sobering section of Scripture. It's always sobering to consider the subject of judgment day and hell. God, I pray that we would be sobered up, that we would be serious about our walks with you, and we'd be serious about people, seeing that other people around us, they are souls. They're not just moving bodies, but they're souls that have eternal destinies. Help us to have a compassion for the lost, that we would love them as you have loved us and desire to proclaim the gospel to them, that they would flee the judgment to come, they would flee to Christ, trust in him as Lord and Savior. I pray for some in this room who are stirred by conviction of your word and and recognize that they are the Paneros, they are identified by the sins that they are enslaved to, and, and they want to escape judgment. They want to escape that day. I pray that they would see and grasp and embrace Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, who accomplished our atonement by an incredible sacrifice, taking punishment in our place, so that through His righteousness, not our own, through His righteousness, we can stand righteous before you on that day. And because of Christ's work, escape judgment. I pray that that person, these persons, would trust in Christ. They would flee to Christ today. Not just to escape judgment, but for full salvation and life, eternal life in his name. We pray for you to do that work, because only you can do it. In Jesus' name, amen.